Welcome to the Press Pass Podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen from The Big Lead, and today we have Mirren Fader from Bleacher Report. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mirren. Thanks for having me. Of course. And to start, as always, uh, how about you just kind of walk me through your journey from when you first realized that you wanted to do sports journalism to where you are now writing these nice big features for uh, Bleacher Report? Yeah, I never thought I would be a, a sports writer. I started out playing basketball, loved basketball, was an athlete all my life. Ended up playing my first year in college at Lewis and Clark College. But, you know, we all come to a point where our career comes to a close and uh, I wanted to stay in the game somehow. Um, and I thought that writing would be the perfect way in. I've always written. I've written in my diaries, but more so like teen angst. <laughs> so it was never <laughs> it was never something that I thought would be public. But once I started doing it in college and starting with freelancing for Slam and SB Nation, a couple places like that, I thought this would be perfect. So ended up starting my career at the Orange County Register for the first four years. And uh, what were you doing there to start? I was doing features on pretty much anything and everything that the beat people didn't pick up. So I was doing a lot of high school. I was doing a lot of Cal State Fullerton, especially their baseball program, and just anything in the community. I mean, I think that really started my hunger for wanting to be a features person because, you know, I saw the beat writer life. I saw, you know, how competitive that was, and I just wanted more space. You know, every time I would write a shorter story, I just thought, what if we added 800 words, you know? So I think that for me, I've always wanted to tell deeper stories, tell stories about people and, you know, doing that every single day for four years uh, for the register just really strengthened my love for it. And we also went through so many layoffs and, and horrible things. And that also strengthened my love for it too, because it could have easily given up and said, you know, this is too hard a journey, but I, I didn't want to. Definitely. And uh, so a lot of the people that I've talked to, obviously, I've talked to a lot of beat writers and I've talked to some feature reporters. And generally speaking, when they talk about when they look back on their early years and as far as kind of doing all sorts of things before they get to the main sport that they cover now, and especially when it comes to high school, they really valued that time. Do you feel the same way as far as those early days of covering high school and covering Cal Fullerton kind of help build into what your writing is like today? Absolutely. I don't think I would be in the place that I am now without that time. There's just time and space to make mistakes. And there's time and space to figure out who you are, what you sound like on the page, even interviewing. I mean, I remember my first day at the register, I was so terrified. I was like, I don't think I have a future in this. I called my mom. I was like, I don't think I'm good enough. You know, I was nervous for interviews. Like it's, it's hard to sit down and talk to a stranger. And so I think that looking at when I started there to when I finished, completely different person, completely different confidence. You just gain um, confidence and experience by doing it, you know? And I think the joy is in the doing. A lot of people want to have written, but they don't necessarily love the reporting and the writing and the grinding, but like, that's the part that I loved. And that's the part that I fell in love with there. For sure. And then uh, once you finished up in Orange County, how did you end up at Bleacher? Yeah, I was uh, freelancing for Bleacher Report, VR Mag, as well as ESPN, actually, while I was staff at the Register, yeah. so kind of in my final year there. VR Mag had just started, and I was up for a job there. 
um, didn't end up getting it, but they let me stay on as a freelancer. And um, I was actually with ESPNW for three years uh, freelancing for them. So I was sort of like on the cusp of trying to get a job at both of those places while I was at the register, but could never quite get it. And it was, it was tough. It was, I was, if I wasn't writing for the register, I was writing for them and that kind of consumed all my time. And then we had layoffs at the uh, register in 2017. And um, unfortunately, you know, I told my job was eliminated. And so I became a full-time freelancer um, for half BR and half ESPN for a couple of months. And then BR said, do you want to go to Lithuania and write about LaMelo Ball? Um, it was the opportunity of a lifetime. And I got hired full-time after that. What about Bleacher as a company? Sort of obviously the fact that essentially Lithuania is awesome and you were probably pretty familiar with the writer. I mean, with the editors from the, your freelancing days. But what about it as kind of a content site appealed to you originally? I mean, I just was like, thank God it's a digital space, you know, a digital only space. I think being at the register for four years and seeing the realities of print um, newspapers and, and just seeing how unsustainable it was just terrified me. And so I was really happy to be in a place that was only digital. I also felt like Bleacher was ahead of the curve as far as their app. Um, they're trying to be like the Instagram of sports. They're trying to be the Twitter of sports. They don't want you to go to those other places. They want you just to go to the app. So I just felt like, okay, I'm in a space that is thinking more future, um, you know, just very innovative. And, you know, those editors there gave me a shot. You know what I mean? Like I was hustling and grinding and trying to make it. And I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite making it. And they just said, like, we believe in you, you know, Christina Tapper, Matt Sullivan, Ben Osborne, like those people gave me a shot. So I'm grateful. And now that you've been there for a little bit now, what do you, I mean, what's the evaluation? How, how have you enjoyed your last year and a half as a full-time staff member? I'm so grateful. I love it. I mean, they basically say, go after the most compelling, interesting stories. You know, I'm the only person there that doesn't have a beat. So, you know, we have Howard Beck and Jonathan Abrams who cover the NBA. And, you know, we have all these people that have their own niche, but I'm sort of the one that floats and parachutes into different worlds. And I just love that they allow me to be me, you know, like Jake Leonard, my editor, Elliot Pono, another editor, they really just support me. And as a long form writer in 2019, you're not going to find too many gigs like that. And so I just feel grateful that I've, I've been given the opportunity to travel and, and figure out what I'm interested in. And like you just said, you, you don't really have your own little niche compared to the other guys over there. So what I'm kind of curious about is that because you cover such a broad spectrum of sports and so many different topics, kind of what is your thought process when you try to formulate a pitch, when you go from writing about women's soccer to Patrick Beverly? How do you sort of switch gears like that? Yeah, I think my synergy is about people. Who is an interesting person? Who has a compelling story? You know, I write about sports, but what I really write about is people. You know, the things that I'm interested in are the stuff that Wright Thompson, um, Gary Smith do. And so I'm just looking at interesting people that have big personalities or things that have national appeal, like the women's soccer CTE story. That is a national conversation that I want to enter. So I just look at things that are of the moment, have national appeal, and have, you know, really strong human interest base. You know, I'm fighting for people's attention. If somebody's going to sit there and scroll through the app and read my story for 20 minutes, I've got to grip them. And somebody like Pat Beverly and his personality and his crazy roundabout story is, is going to grip them. Mm -hmm. And then you did say, like you said, you write about people more than you write about sports. And obviously, in order to be able to do that successfully, 
you really need to be able to connect with these people in a relatively short amount of time as far as the interviewing goes. How much have you personally, do you think you've improved as a reporter as far as the interview process goes from back when you started at Orange County? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think I've improved a lot because I've been in situations where, you know, you have three minutes. My, one of my first stories for, um, for Bleacher Report while I was still at the Orange County Register was on Sean McVay, and they gave me three minutes to interview him. And I had to, you know, ask a really good question, but then interview over 20 people around him to get closer to that story. So I think from the time that I was registered till the time that I'm now, I'm at now, I just realized that reporting is so much deeper than your subject. That's an important interview, but it's not the most important interview. What I've learned is about talking to everyone around that subject. So if I'm going to do a profile, I'm going to do it to my you know, full-out ability, which means talking to over 20 people. I've always said to myself, there's a lot of people that are better reporters than me. There's a lot of people that are better writers than me, but I'm not going to let anyone outwork me. And I think a lot of reporting is about outworking people. Yeah, I definitely think that that's a good way to look at it. And then, you know, like, like we were just talking about, like you interview, yeah, yeah, interview the people around them as much as it's as important as interviewing the actual subject. So when, let's say, for example, when you headed to Lithuania to go hang out with the Ball family and write about that, how much of your sort of plan beforehand kind of stayed when you got there? And how much did you kind of change the plan as the, as, as, as everything went on? The plan changed literally the second I got there. Everything <laughs> unraveled. Everything went wrong. Um, so imagine you're a freelancer and you're, you've been given the opportunity of your life and you've got to come back with the biggest story of the year and all of a sudden you get there and your access is pretty much cut off. So uh, initially we had conversations with them. They said I could talk to Mello. It seemed like access was a thing, but, you know, we didn't really know what that meant. Had to go there, figure it out myself. I interview LeVar pretty much the first day I'm there. I see him in the, in the lobby. I just walk up to him. I do that. The next day, uh, there's a report that comes out that, you know, LeVar has said negative things about Luke Walton. It goes viral. LeVar uh, feels betrayed by the reporter that did that. And he says, we're not talking to media anymore. So basically, uh, very early on, in I was supposed to be there for a month, they say, no more access. You're not talking to Mello. You're not doing anything. So I go from you know, maybe I'll have access, I'm pretty sure, to none at all. So what I did was have to shift my plan completely. Bleacher was not um, going to send me home. And I decided to sneak into the gym for practice because the only people that were allowed to be in there was Facebook because they were filming their Facebook reality show. And I just said, like, they got to come to practice at some point, right? Like, there's only one gym in this tiny little town. Um, sure enough, I was correct. <laughs> they showed up a couple hours later somehow convinced Lithuanian authority people and coaches to let me stay. Then I just showed up the next day, didn't say anything. And I just kept showing up for, you know, almost a month. And uh, I had a front row seat to access. So originally thought I didn't have any. And then I, I really fought to make my own way there. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty remarkable. Have you, <laughs> uh, have you had anything like that as far as the plan changing that drastically in the stories that you wrote for Bleacher after that? I've never had anything like that before. I mean, my second story in Australia, uh, originally they said we were going to have access, and then three days before they said no access. So, again, I, I kind of went through that there, but 
obviously I ended up getting access. I uh, convinced Jermaine Jackson, his manager, to let me talk to Mel, and I ended up spending two weeks with him. So kind of the polar opposite, but I will say for shifting my plan and learning how to do that, a lot of it was my editor. You know, I mentioned Christina Tapper. She just said, like, I trust you. Whatever is going on on the ground, let me know. Because you got to remember, a lot of people in America thought everything was going great with that family, right? They were scoring 40 points a game. Everything was jolly. But I was reporting back to her, and I was saying, I think this league is kind of a scam. Um, they're playing against, you know, middle schoolers, it seems like. And she trusted me, and, and that's how we were able to shift the plan as a company. Yeah, on the fly, it's uh, pretty remarkable that that managed to be pulled out. And the stories came out excellently, too. So I guess, you know... All kind of works out in the end one way or the other, even if the path isn't quite what you thought it was going to be. <laughs> you got to be adaptable. That's the one thing, right? Story is going to take you in a, a million directions. And that's why it's hard, you know, when others say, well, what's the story about before you even go report? I'm like, I have no idea. It's going to change and it's going to shift. And, um, you know, you have to let it take you where it goes. Especially as a long form reporter, you have, you know, the kernel of the idea, but it's not like the beat guys who are like, I have this angle, so it's going to be this story. It's, you know, it's a lot of changing, right. adjusting on the fly from my perspective anyway. Totally. All right. Well, that is a pretty remarkable journey that you have there. But now we're going to move on to the <laughs> next interview here where uh, we just talk about some general basketball questions. So to start, we were just talking about LaMelo, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to... Uh, He's, you know, obviously one of the top draft prospects this year. Um, where do you, as a, you know, as somebody who's spent a lot of time around him as far as the game goes and his personality goes, where do you see uh, from the teams that are at the top of the draft board right now, which what which landing spot would be best for him? I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, he says he likes Curry. It would just be nice to see him be on the Warriors. But I, I honestly have no idea because what it comes down to is, is the – is the organization going to be patient with him, but also allow him to create, you know, like he needs to be in an organization where they understand that like, he doesn't like to run a play every single time down. Like he needs to be in a space where he's kind of allowed to run with it. I mean, he's in a situation now where he's learning to play in an offense, but he's, he's just so much better in the open floor when he's just kind of um, just freewheeling a bit. So whoever gets him, um, they need to kind of allow that potential to develop. I don't think he's all the way has it together, but I think there's really exciting things about him that kind of, um, it makes sense. You know, I, I think you, you'll see things in year one, but uh, a lot of it might come together in year two. So patience. Yeah. And I think, you know, as far as organizational stability goes, the Warriors are probably at the top of the list and they have the top draft pick right now. So that wouldn't be the worst place for him to end up, but it would be a little bit more fun <laughs> to Memphis or something where he could just totally freewheel where they let the young guys play. So it'll be really interesting to watch. Now, you did mention that uh, you grew up a huge basketball fan. Who was your favorite player growing up? <laughs> Kobe was definitely my favorite player growing up. I feel like in L.A., um, that was that was my that was my team. That was my squad. Well, of course. So who's your favorite player to watch right now in the NBA then? I can't answer that. I don't know. I, Come it's on. hard. I'm not, a, I, I know, I know. I'm not a fan like I used to. Um, I don't know. It's, it's taken it away for me a bit because I know things that I didn't know then. <laughs> um, but I will say it, it has been, nice and interesting to see what's been happening uh, with the Lakers. I feel like this entire city has been down and out for like a decade. So 
um, I know my friends are, are thrilled. You guys don't feel threatened about the clip by the Clippers at all. <laughs> I think the true Laker fans here are annoyed by it. Um, <laughs> not necessarily feeling threatened, but just, you know, they look at it like, look, like we have Braun, we have AD. Like I don't understand. And, and you know, next question. But um I mean, I'm intrigued by the Clippers way more than I'm intrigued by the Lakers. And that's why I did that Pat Beverly story. Um, I just think it's the first time I've, I've felt as an L.A. native that there was like a serious challenge, you know. Um, so it'll be interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that it probably is the first time there's been a serious challenge, if only because the Clippers have just been so horrendously bad for so long. <laughs> like forever. Um, yeah. I chased Darius Miles for a story for Bleacher for like eight months that never came to light, um, which was upsetting. But Darius Miles was like obviously a part of my childhood just as much as Kobe was. And um, I was really disappointed when I saw the Players' Tribune came out with their story. I was like, no, I was chasing him. I got so close. So close, but so far. Anyway, <laughs> move on to the last part of the interview here, which is just four quick, kind of quick or five quick hitter questions. How does that sound? That sounds good. All right. So I know, you know, journalists, we don't talk about ourselves very often, but I want to ask you, what was out of, this could be from any point in your career, what has been your favorite story to write, whether it's how it came out or just the journey that you went on through it? What has been your favorite story to write at the, uh, up to this point? I think it was this summer when I went on, um, I went, I traveled with the Aces, the Las Vegas Aces, the WNBA team. I got to be around them 24 seven for a week. And I got to travel with them from Vegas to New York, like actually be on the plane. And um, like I said, I was an athlete. My dream originally was to be in the WNBA. And so 12 year old me was just living her best life. Um, it was so cool. It was just so cool. Like I had fun and I don't usually like have fun when I'm reporting because I'm so serious. Um, but that was one where I just allowed myself to really enjoy it. You know, I just kind of stopped and I was like, dude, this is cool. Like, look how far you've come. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. And then kind of on the flip side of that, uh, was there any story, any long form, perhaps story in particular when you were early on in your career that you wrote that really gave you the confidence to realize that you could do this? Yeah, I would say I followed this Japanese American basketball team uh, for like two years when I was at the register. Basically, there were Japanese American only leagues um, in Southern California since you know World War II and, and earlier at that too. But you know those leagues really helped foster a sense of community in the internment camps. And it really allowed Japanese Americans to stay intact community-wise in all the years since the war. And I became so enwrapped in that team and so, um, so enmeshed in, in their lives. And it was basically a group of women that had all sorts of connections to the camps and they were the best team in LA. They didn't lose a game in 20 years, allegedly. And I, when I was reporting that story, yeah, I was just like, you know what? Nobody knows about this team. Nobody cares about this team, but like I do, they're interesting. And I, I think like a theme for me in my career has just been like, I love this so much. Like I have a passion for this. And I think reporting that story just made me solidify in my mind, like, this is what I want to do. You know, mm -hmm. I want to write, a, I want to write about interesting people and things. And that was um, to do something like that for two years to stick with it took a lot of dedication. I think that was a turning point for me. Absolutely. That sounds like it's a pretty remarkable experience, all things considered, for somebody young in their career. Yeah, absolutely. I was lucky. 
And now this question, I'm very interested in hearing the answer to because you have interviewed quite a range of people. But to this point, who has been your favorite individual to interview? Nate Robinson. Oh, Nate. Uh, I prof- yeah, I profiled him last year. And that was also another fun story. Uh, you know, I'm really short. I'm five feet. So Nate has, like, been my inspiration since, like, forever. And uh, I remember <laughs> I remember watching him growing up, and I'm like, I could do this. Like, I could be in the WNBA, you know. And um, to see him all those years later and to see his, his struggles that he went through in the league, it was, it was crazy. And I think he's a person that has such an interesting spirit and a funny spirit. And I don't know, talking to one of your childhood idols was, crazy and it was just he's really cool to be around and I think it was also there a part of his story was really sad because he can't get back what he had um so that was one of my favorite stories and interviews to work on yeah and along with being a childhood hero from all accounts he's a hilarious person so he's so funny and the photos the photos we did for that story were hilarious it just I don't know. You know, the goal of photography, obviously, is to capture the essence of a person. We had him, like, jumping off of cliffs, like, being <laughs> crazy, like, doing Nate, the most Nate Robinson things ever. So, loved it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so, this could be, so what's one thing about your job, whether it's as a long-form reporter specifically or just as a sports journalist in general, that you feel like other people don't know or don't really understand? You have to be incredibly tough. You have to be very thick-skinned. Um, there's a lot of people that will obviously tell you no. Um, but as a woman, there's obviously things that I'm going to go through that other people aren't going to go through. And I think that a lot of people think that our lives are very glamorous. You know, we talk to superstars. And, you know, it, it doesn't help that I feel like a lot of people in our industry just, you know, are very casual. Like, oh, I wrote a thing. But, like, the truth is it's a grind. It's transcribing at 3 a.m. in some random airport in Kentucky your deadline is in a few hours, you need to get it done. Um, I think that the people that succeed in our industry are grinders and there are people that really take this craft seriously. And I just think that because of everything that's gone on in media, um, if you have a job, you obviously know that and you see the consequences and the things happening to your peers around you. And it, it's really sad. And I think that like, I, carry that with me all the time as a person who's endured her own stuff early in the career. So I just think it's, you have to be very tough. It's a, it's a brutal industry. And I I don't think a lot of people understand the things that we go through collectively. Yeah. That's a really good answer because I feel, yeah, it's just like you say, they think the job is glamorous. You get to go to nice cool cities and interview these gigantic personalities, but this industry is a tumultuous, shall we say. Right, right. And that doesn't mean that, you know, there can't be happy things and good things. I I just, and I always encourage the next journalist to give it a try. You know, I I remember so many people discouraging me when I was starting out. And um, I'll always encourage people. It's just like any other industry, you know, give it all you got, hope for the best. You know, I I don't know. I mean, that's all you can really do, right? Right. And then last, but certainly not least... What's one thing about this job that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were starting out? Oh, my gosh. That networking doesn't have to happen in one coffee meeting. I think I was so anxious. <laughs> I think I was just so anxious and, and determined. And uh, I'm not going to use the word desperate. I'm, I'm going to use the word hungry. I was so hungry to make it and break in that I thought 
this one meeting with this one person is so important and we need to establish trust now and <laughs> I need to be their person now. And um, networking happens over a long period of time. It's, it's not the first coffee. It's, it's the follow-up and the next follow-up and running into each other here and something happens and you happen to be in the right place and you knew that person from four years ago. Um, a prime example would be at Bleacher Report. Our editor-in-chief, Ben Osborne, he was the editor-in-chief at Slam Magazine when I was freelancing as a 19-year-old, uh, and, and now I'm, I'm working for him as a 28-year-old. Connections are built over time, and I wish I would tell the younger me and as well as younger journalists, like, slow down. Like, I know you're determined. I know you want to make connections, but it can just come off the wrong way, and um, I think true connections are built over time. Yeah, that's a great answer. Most of the answers that I get to that question are something about networking, but that's the first time I've heard where it's like, it, it'll it'll come, it'll come. It's important, but it'll come. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. All right, well, that'll be it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mirren. It was really great talking to you, and I enjoyed your candidness as always. Yes, thanks for the questions. Appreciate it. Of course, and thank you, listener, for tuning into the Press Pass podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.